All right. Hey, everybody. It's good to be back with you today. Um, I'm excited after a few weeks off. We had to take a week because um, I hurt my back. Um, and I just want to say thanks to everybody who wrote me little messages and notes and everything. Um, I'm slowly getting better. I may have to film this sermon in a few different stints. So if I show up all of a sudden in the middle of a sentence with a different shirt on, it's because I'm filming the rest tomorrow. Um, but I just took a handful of back medicine pills and I've got my back brace on, um, which is why I'm wearing this big bulky sweater, so you guys don't see how lumpy it makes me. Um, but anyway, I am doing a little bit better, I'm, but I'm not all the way back. So um, anyway, I just appreciate you guys praying for me. And uh, I want to also just give a special thank you to Marcus and Jen, who um, filled in last week. Uh, it was really great of them. Uh, you know, to, to teach for us and to share their life. And um, I just really had a great time, you know, listening to what they have to say and um, being encouraged by um, by the way that they live their lives with the art of neighboring and um, the way that they're loving the people around them. So today we're going to be back in the book of Luke. Um, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 6, um, and we're going to read some of Jesus's teaching today. So if you have a Bible, do go ahead and grab that, turn to Luke 6. Um, if you want to follow along in the YouVersion app, um, the link to that is on our website where you saw this, you know, wherever you picked up this um, this sermon, uh, the link is there as well. Um, so let me just open this up in prayer. Um, Lord, we want to um, serve you as our Lord. We want to serve you as our King. Um, we want to be a part of your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that um, this teaching uh, that you gave your disciples thousands of years ago would um, pierce our hearts the same way it did for them, and that you would use your Holy Spirit, Lord. You'd send your Spirit upon us to impact us with these words. Um, don't let this, Lord, just be another one of those Bible passages that we've read a ton of times and we just kind of gloss over, but give us fresh eyes to see what it is that you have to speak specifically to our church group, you know, our community. So we just, please be here today. Amen. So you may have... Um, heard the word manifesto before, right? Like, um, usually that's not a great word, right? Like you have, um, you know, it's where somebody writes a document and kind of lays out their belief system, right? It's a call to action. Um, you know, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not so good. Like, uh, in the Reformation, um, John Calvin got famous because when he was very young, he wrote what started out as a thin little booklet that just said, uh, this is what we Protestants believe. And he called it the Institutes of Christian Religion. Um, he had an, he ended up editing it almost his whole life there till it ended up this huge you know four book set that's crazy long and um, anyway uh, you know but that was kind of the Protestant Reformation's manifesto or um, a huge one was um, Thomas Paine's Common Sense uh, had a huge impact on um, the colonists right before the American Revolution and um, I, I remember I mean I haven't read it in I think I read it in college maybe. Um, but, you know, it was a huge, it was a book that, a little booklet that really sparked people to action. Or, you know, you have Karl Marx, who uh, wrote the Communist Manifesto, just laying out his economic theories and all that sort of stuff. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to read the Jesus Manifesto. We're going to read the Kingdom of God um, Manifesto. So before we get into this sermon, we're going to take this sermon in three different so Jesus preached one sermon, and then I'm going to take three sermons to uh, walk us through it. Um, and so um, 
what we want to do first, though, is just remember the context, because it's actually been a few weeks um, since we did one of these uh, Luke sermons. So uh, the context last time, what we talked about was him calling the 12. And we went through each of the um, the, the 12 disciples who he has chosen now uh, to follow him and to learn from him and um, to absorb his life, you know, into their lives. And um, so this, that's the context. That's the initial context. So he's called these guys together. He also has kind of a wider group that we'll read about in a second, but he's going to teach these people about the kingdom, right? So he didn't just call them and hope that they picked stuff up from watching him. Um, he does specifically get into the teaching of the kingdom to lay, he, uh, he spends this sermon laying out the basics of um, his message about the kingdom of God. And one of the things he's going to talk about is happiness. Now, one of the problems is too many Christians, I think, um, think that the path to salvation comes through a gloomy spirituality, right? Uh, almost devoid of happiness. Um, today, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at what Jesus uh, specifically has to say about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is the opposite. The kingdom of God is not um, some sort of gloomy spirituality with no happiness. The kingdom of God is about our um, it's about our ultimate happiness. And so as we read this text, as we read this sermon, I want us to sort of um, uh, to keep that in mind. So we're going to start here um, in, let's see, where are we? Six. Uh, we're going to start here in verse 17. It says, uh, and he came down with them. So that's the disciples. He's just called the disciples. He came down with them and he stood on a level place. Now in Matthew 5 through 7, we have a parallel passage. So the first, especially first three gospels have a whole bunch of passages that overlap, parallel passages, we call them. The parallel passage for this sermon is Matthew 5 through 7. And in Matthew 5 through 7, we call that the Sermon on the Mount. Um, that version in Matthew is quite a bit longer than the version that we read about in Luke. So one of the questions as we're reading this, is this the same sermon? Are Luke and Matthew both um, Matthew would have actually been there. Luke would have heard from other people because remember he was like an investigative reporter, but are they writing about the same event? Now, here's the thing. When we read the two sermons, there are small differences in wording. What's going on? Well, remember that um, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. And so when he was teaching this sermon to his followers, he was talking to them in Aramaic. Both of these gospels were written in Greek um, and were translated. And as you know, translation is not a one-to-one not a one-to-one -one thing, right? It's, um, there's an art form to translation. And so even if you just take two of the, the Bibles that I really like, um, you know, there's three or four I use all the time, but two of the ones I use a lot are this Bible that we read here in church is the ESV. And I like the ESV because um, it's very, it's great for studying. It's also pretty good for reading, um, but it's very literal. You know, it, it tries to stay as close to the original languages as possible word for word. Um, another translation, though, that I really like takes more liberty. It's called the New Living Translation. And the New Living Translation um, is more of a thought-for-thought, sentence-for-sentence translation. And so one of the options here is that Luke and Matthew are kind of doing that. One of them is translating a little more word-for-word. Word. One of them is translating a little more thought-for-thought. Thought. Um, but both of them are faithfully telling the story of the same event. Um, another option, though, would could be that these are two different sermons. Um Anybody who preaches at more than one place reuses a lot of the same material. Um, you know, preachers, this is what we do. Um, I even, uh, you know, like I'll teach a sermon that I've taught before, and I'll even know when the crowd's going to laugh, what they're going to laugh at. Actually, that really threw me off once because 
I was teaching a sermon where I had to preach the same sermon at three different services at this church and, or two services. Yeah, it was two. And at the first service, I had this joke and everybody laughed. And then at the second service, I was really excited to tell my joke again. And it just fell completely flat. The congregation at the second group was so different. But anyway, the point is we all reuse material. If you watch Parks and Rec, um, there's a spot where Leslie is running for city council, I think. And Ben is her campaign manager. And uh, they show Ben while she's kind of off in the back doing her stump speech. And uh, they show Ben and he uh, he makes a joke about and everybody's going to laugh in three, two, one. And everybody laughs because she's just doing the same speech over and over and over again. So that's another option is maybe Jesus preached this a similar sermon as he traveled around this area to different groups. And he just kind of reused a lot of the same material. Sometimes he reordered it. Um, so this sermon that we're reading in Luke, because of where it says that he came to a level place, uh, we call it the Sermon on the Plain. Um, so it could be a sermon with different sort of editing and translation. My guess is Jesus preached it a few times. Either way, it's not super important if this is the exact same sermon as the one from Matthew. Um, there, there's a lot of overlap with Matthew, and there's some very minor differences. Nothing. There's no spot, though, where Jesus says, this is how the kingdom of God works in one sermon, and then in another sermon, actually, it works this way. Right? Everything here fits together really well. Okay, so let's keep going. Um, verse 17 um, and 18. He came down with them and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those uh, who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Oh, wait, hold on. My, my phone just went off. Let me just turn that off. Okay. Um, so that... Um, yeah, that's the verses. Uh, the context here is, remember, the context of this sermon. What, what's the, um, the uh, situation that's going on here is people came to Jesus for two reasons. They came to hear him and they came to be healed. Now, we've talked about uh, um, healing before a bunch already in the book of Luke. So I'm not going to super get into this part where he's healing people of all different kinds of diseases. But what I do want to focus on for just a second is look at the audience that we see here. There's first, there's a great crowd of his disciples. Um, remember that there's the three disciples, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Then there's the 12. That's who we talked about last time. But we also see a group of disciples that seem to have followed Jesus around for quite a while. Um, the ones he sends out. And I always get confused if it's 70 or 72. And so I looked it up. And the reason is because um, uh, there's a, a textual variant there. So sometimes it says 70, sometimes it says 72. And that's why I'm so confused. But there's that group of probably 72 is what I read about uh, disciples who seem to have followed him around a lot. There's also this large group of women who were disciples of Jesus uh, who followed him, you know, like the 500 different Marys that were trying to figure out which Mary is which, right? And Martha and some of these other women. Um, so there, Jesus has this group of disciples. So that's the first sort of group that's here. There's also a crowd of people from Judea and Jerusalem. So this is uh, Jewish folks from down south. We're up in the north right now where Jesus is teaching this sermon. Um, but these Jewish folks would have traveled probably just to hear Jesus. Um, some of these were probably Pharisees that we read about before um, who came up to evaluate Jesus, uh, his teaching. But others were probably just, lay, you know, regular folks uh, who, who showed up to hear him teach from down there. Um, then we have people from Tyre and Sidon. Now, these are uh, Jewish folks, but who probably Jewish folks, but who lived in a mostly Gentile area. So not near Jerusalem. They lived in an area where uh, a lot of Greeks and Romans lived. Um, and so... 
Again, though, of course, the context here of the sermon, the way Luke writes this out, is the calling of the twelve. Right, So these 12 disciples now and this wider group, Jesus is going to lay out for them what the kingdom of God looks like. Verse 19, keep going. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and he healed them all. So power is flowing from Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. We talked, we did two or three sermons very early on and talked about how Jesus lived his life as the spirit-filled Messiah. He lived his life um, as a human being completely empowered by the Holy Spirit. And uh, we talked about that's how he healed people. He did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he learned his Bible. He did that in the power of the Spirit. And the reference here now, why the power coming out of him is um, uh, so important, is because not only is he... uh, healing people in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is also how he teaches people. He teaches people in the same way. And that's kind of hinted at here in um, uh, verse 20. It says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said. So Jesus does this lifting up his eyes thing also in John 17 um, at the beginning of the high priestly prayer where he prays for his disciples. Um, uh, But before we get into this next part, if you look at the next word, right, uh, he lifts up his eyes on his disciples and he said, blessed, and he says, blessed are you, blah, blah, blah. We'll get into that in a sec. Um, But I want to stop for a second. This is very important and talk about this word, um, this word that we translate in English um, as blessed or blessed, right? What does this English word mean today? Well, the first thing, when you think of this word, you think of church. This is a very churchy word. Um, Nobody else uses Uh, or hardly anybody uses this word outside of church. And in our culture, it means a few things, right? Like in the Catholic church, you've got the holy water or whatever, you know, is blessed. It's blessed by a priest. Or that's one way we use this word. Or let's say that I met a Christian author and I said, oh man, your book really blessed me. You know, whatever your name is. Uh, What I would mean by that is that your book was was good for my spiritual for my spirituality for my spiritual health right it was a blessing to me um Randy Alcorn wrote a book actually called happiness it's a really um um, it's a great book, but it's one of those books that could have been half as long, you know. Um, but anyway, I think all his books are like that, you know, fantastic, but really long um, <laughs> for what he's saying. But he wrote a book about happiness. And um, while he was writing that book, he did a survey on his Facebook, just asking regular church folks um, or, you know, just asking anybody. I assume it's mostly church folks that follow him on Facebook. But um, uh, what do you think when you hear the word blessed? And this is what people wrote. Uh, These were the top answers. Lucky, uh, things going well, having my needs met, mercy from God, uh, protection from God, uh, spiritual anointing. Um, And then one person even said, look at my new expensive car. I'm so blessed. Right? Now, if you look at all those answers and you think about all the things that we think of when we see the word blessed, the one thing we don't think of is the word happy. Um, In, in, the Bible, though, there are two words that are linked together. There's the, the Hebrew word asher and uh, the Greek word uh, makirios. I, my Greek pronunciation is terrible, so uh, don't get on me about that. But um, almost every lexicon, when you read about one of those two words, says that these two words mean happy. And almost all theologians agree that this word that's translated almost always as blessed actually means happy. Now, quick caveat. One thing I don't want to do 
when we talk about Hebrew and Greek uh, in a sermon is I don't want you to have less faith in the translations that we're using. Um, sometimes, though, because translation is not a one-to-one thing, sometimes translations just need more explanation because there's not a great uh, translation for a word, or there's a lot of different reasons. Um, but blessed, I don't think, is a great translation for either of these two Greek or Hebrew words. So why do we translate it as the word blessed? Um, well, at the time that the King James Bible was put together in the early 1600s, I think it was finished in 1611, um, blessed was a synonym in English for the word happy. The two words were completely interchangeable. Um, but the thing is, language changes. Right, so let me give you an example of how language changes. If you read in Titus 2.14, and you look this up in a King James Bible, it says, um, you know, speaks of Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar a peculiar people. Um, well, uh, some of us uh, Christ followers may indeed be strange, right? We might be peculiar and weird. Um, but 400 years ago, the word peculiar meant uh, um, unique. It meant singular. Uh, so now it means weird. So this word has changed. And when you read that in English now, that verse doesn't make any sense. Blessed is one of those words or blessed. Uh, it used to mean happy. Now it means something else in everybody's minds. And so when we read Jesus saying, blessed are the whatever, um, he's not the ultimate buzzkill. He's not the ultimate, um, you know, like the angry principal in the sky who can't wait to catch you chewing gum in the hallway, right? Jesus, the kingdom of God is about our ultimate happiness. The kingdom of God is about our ultimate joy. And you will never be more happy You will never be more fulfilled, more joyful than you will be with Jesus in his kingdom. And so as we think about this sermon, this is how the sermon begins, talking about our ultimate happiness. And one anonymous ancient author uh, writing about the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain said this, "Um, There are two ways, one of life and one of death. Between the two ways, there's a great difference. And so he's saying there's a way of life and happiness, and that's what Jesus is trying to encourage people into. And then there's a way of despair and death, and that's on the other side. And so Jesus is going to lay it all out, happiness in the kingdom or despair outside of the kingdom. But we have to remember that this sermon is also in the context of the book of Luke with what we've read about the kingdom so far. The kingdom is upside down, right? If you remember, we've talked about this a few times, thinking about a triangle, how kingdoms in the world, the way that they work is there's like a pyramid and the person at the top, the king at the top is being supported by everybody else underneath. But the kingdom of God takes that triangle and it flips it upside down so that what we're trying to do is work our way to the bottom so that we're holding people up so that we're serving people and we're loving people. And the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of the world in that it's about outsiders coming in. Uh, we read about, um, you know, uh, all the different, um, prayers and prophecies during the birth narrative were specifically tailored to talk about how outsiders from the Jewish faith were going to be grafted into the people of God. Um, in, uh, um, yeah, so let's jump now. Let's read. Um, uh, I'm going to read this whole section that we're going to cover today, um, and then we're going to break it up and we're going to go through it. So uh, let me just click through my notes here. All right, so here we go. The Beatitudes um, and then the Woes. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, 
when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so the fathers, their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Okay, so as we read this, do you see there's um, there's the, the Beatitudes, the, the, the blessed are you, you know, these ones. And then there's the woe, which is sort of an ancient... Um, uh, an ancient uh, prophetic method uh, that if you if you go through the Old Testament prophets, you'll see that a bunch. Woe to you who, you know, um, you'll see that uh, that phrase used a lot. And so Jesus is picking that up from the prophets. But as we look at the Beatitudes and the woes, what we'll notice is that there's four pairs <clears throat> and that they're um, they're linked together, these four pairs. And so um, we're going to take each of these four pairs uh, together. So we'll take... Um, you know, we'll go through them that way. Um, but before we get into them, I think it's also important uh, to talk about how we interpret these blessings and these woes. These are not universal. What I mean by that is think about what we just read. Poor, hungry, weeping, persecuted. It is possible to be those things and to not receive the kingdom of God, to not be happy in the kingdom of God. It's also possible to be rich, to be full, laughing, well-respected, and to receive the kingdom of God. Um, it's a lot like um, uh, the Proverbs are not universal promises. It's the same thing here. These Beatitudes and these woes are not universal problem uh, promises. But what Jesus is doing is he's challenging the way that the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, um, taught and the way that they thought in their day. Um, remember, we talked about this with some of the healing stuff. And what they believed was that if you were... Um, poor or if you were uh, injured or sick or whatever, it's because uh, God was punishing you for some sort of sin or maybe even the sin of your parents or your clan, because remember, they were much more communal than we are very individualistic. And so for anybody in this day and age to think that a poor person could be any part of the religious elite was nuts uh, because God was punishing them for whatever. And so what Jesus is saying here is that uh, these things that you you guys are saying will automatically keep somebody out of the kingdom of God um, is he's saying that's not true, right? You can have these things and you can have true happiness. And so there's four pairs here. So let's get into the first pair. The first pair is the, 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 um, the, the poor and the wealthy. So he says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. And then you jump down to verse 24, but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. So he starts by talking about poverty, um, and the Bible Project talked about this in their book, their video on the Book of Luke, and it's really great if you have not worked through those Book of Luke videos. But um, uh, in Matthew, what this actually says in the Matthew parallel, it says, "You know, blessed are you who are poor in spirit." Um, in English, when we see the word "poor," what that means is somebody without a lot of money, without a lot of wealth or buying power. Um, in Second Temple Judaism, right, in the first century, um, this was a much wider uh, word than that. It had a broader meaning. Um, there's a guy, Robert, I don't know how to say his last name, Golich, uh, who says this, the poor in Judaism referred to those um, in desperate need, social, a socioeconomic element whose helplessness drove them to a dependent relationship with God, the religious element, for the supply of their needs and vindication. Basically, what he's saying is, 
The poor was not just people without money. It was anybody at the bottom of society. And if you remember back when Jesus, um, I'm going to jump back to Luke 4. I'm going to read verses 16 through 19. Do you remember when Jesus was at his hometown synagogue and he picked up a scroll from Isaiah? And this is, this is what happens. Um, this is his first kind of public sermon that we read about in the book of Luke. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim, and this is the key, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus meant. Um, that's what they meant in the first century world by poor, people who were oppressed, people who uh, were sort of at the bottom uh, the bottom of society. And so, so far, we've seen Jesus bringing the outcast, these people that have been pushed away, into the fold. Demon-possessed people, uh, lepers, the paralytic. Um, we saw him call a tax collector, Matthew, Levi, Matthew, um, you know, who's a poor outcast, but he's rich in money. Uh, we've seen him heal the man with the withered hand who everybody assumed had sinned. Um, this is who Jesus is now bringing into the fold. And so he says, you know, blessed are you who are poor. And the reward is for yours is the kingdom of God. So imagine just how um, paradigm shifting this was for anybody sitting and listening to this sermon for the first time. Imagine growing up your whole life hearing that God blessed the rich and he was punishing people for their sins or for the sins of their families or clans or whatever, you know. Um, these people were, were outcasts for a reason because God had made them outcasts. And imagine that this, um, this, this idea had been drilled in your head for years and years. And then you show up and you hear about this preacher and you go and you watch him and he's healing people. And people who you thought were going to die, people with leprosy, all these horrible diseases are healed. And you think to yourself, man, only somebody who has a close connection to God could heal like this. This guy must know what's up. This guy is clearly a prophet of Yahweh. And then he stands up and he drops this bombshell. Those people that you've heard your whole life are on the outside crowd. Those people who, who, who the religious leaders have said they're worthless and they're not um, they're not part of the in crowd. Jesus says, blessed are those people for they have the kingdom. And he continues the same theme, right? Look at, ver, um, you know, the next part, the second pair is hungry and full. So first he says, blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. And then drop down to verse 25, the flip side, the woe, but woe to you who are full now for you shall be hungry. So, Hunger, again, we don't really know what it's like to be hungry. When we talk about hunger, it's because what? Dinner was an hour late, right? But in this world, uh, they knew hunger, right? Um, it, I mean, it kind of reminds me, one of my favorite stories was from a documentary about the book Through Gates of Splendor, where these missionaries, um, um, it's a long story, but anyway, these missionaries somewhere in South America, Central America, maybe, I don't remember exactly where they were, um, you know, converted this tribe and a bunch of these guys um, who killed the husbands of these women became elders in the church uh, and, and converted. And one of these elders helped raise the kid of one of the guys he had killed. And it's kind of, it's kind of this beautiful story. Well, anyway, the kid was graduating from high school here in the States. And uh, so this, this native guy from, you know, down there, he flew up here for the graduation. 
And um, I saw, I remember the interview with him where he was describing, um, you know, uh, what it was like to be in America. And he was describing a grocery store. And this is a guy who hunts for his own food and, you know, uh, gathers his own, you know, kind of stuff from like, I think they live in the jungle and they live off of the jungle land. Right. And so he was describing a grocery store and I just, I don't remember exactly his wording, but I'm, it was, you know, you walk into this huge grocery, you know, this huge, um, warehouse and it's just filled with food, uh, as much food as you can see. And you take a cart and you just fill it with as much food as you want. And then you walk up and all you have to do is smile at the lady on the way out and she lets you take whatever you want. And then he was describing a, um, uh, drive through. And then you just drive up to somebody's house and they reach out the window and they hand you bags of food. This guy was just amazed at how much food we have. Um, and that always stuck with me. But in the first century world, this was not the case. Um, f- there were real famine and hunger and, uh, you know, food shortages. And it was actually a lot of tension because a lot of the food in Rome was grown in Egypt. And when there was trouble between Rome and the people who ran Egypt, the Romans who ran Egypt, uh, people in Rome would starve. And it was a real problem. And so Jesus, though, now picks up on this theme. So he's got the poor, but he's also now talking about the hunger or the hungry. And he says, look, you guys who are hungry now, you will be satisfied. The new heavens and the new earth, as uh, in the book of Revelation, are pictured as um, this huge, wonderful feast that everybody, uh, you know, all these different kinds of people will be invited to. And so Jesus now is specifically talking to the hungry, and he's saying, and, you know, it's not that hunger is is a good thing. Hunger is not, and the church over the years has spent a lot of time trying to feed people who are hungry. Um, but he's saying, look, if you're hungry now, remember that where your hope comes from, that you're headed to the feast, right? You can still be happy now in your hunger because you've got Jesus and because you have the hope that you're headed to this eternal feast. So that's the second one. The third one is weeping and laughing. Uh, He says, blessed are you uh, who weep now for you shall laugh. And then you jump down the rest of 25. Woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. Now, I, I don't think that this is a condemnation of joy, and laughter. In Matthew, it's actually, remember, this was originally in Aramaic and translated to Greek. And Matthew, translating the same sentence, actually uses a different Greek word that means more like mourning, um, uh, like you would do at a funeral. And one commentator, actually a lot of commentators, but one guy specifically was talking about how what's going on here is this is the early step of salvation, right? You can't repent of your sin until you're brokenhearted about it. And this weeping that Jesus is talking about is the weeping over what sin has turned you into, what sin has made you. Uh, It is a weeping over injustice. It's a weeping over suffering and pain, sickness and death. It's the weeping that Jesus feels when he sees what sin has done when Lazarus dies. And Jesus is looking at this broken world. Um, In James, he talks about this. He says, James 4, be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laugh be turned into mourning and your joy uh, to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's the kind of weeping that leads to this uh, humility and calling out to the Lord. Um, Paul talks about this also in 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So this is not just some sort of a gloomy sadness for no reason. This is not depression. Um, This is a weeping, the weeping that leads to repentance. And um, that repentance then leads to life, uh, life in the kingdom. And life in the kingdom is what brings real 
actual joy, real, actual happiness. And so the promise to the people who have this sort of sorrow over sin is you shall laugh. Again, the new heavens and the new earth, there will be a joy uh, almost beyond imagination in this life. Now, the woe here is the flip side of this. Again, Jesus isn't condemning, like I said, all joy and happiness. In fact, he's giving um, his disciples the path to real, actual joy, real, actual, deep happiness. What he's condemning here is this flippant laughter, this flippant joy that doesn't take sin seriously, that doesn't take the fallen world seriously. Think of um, Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5, who throws this big party, all the while the Persians are knocking down the walls of Babylon. They're attacking the city, and he just has this kind of unrealistic, uh, really kind of stupid party Um, to try to satisfy himself with a false joy. So that's the third one, right? We have the laughing and the weeping. Um, The fourth uh, pair now is the longest one. It's the, um, the persecuted and the accepted. So he says, blessed are you when people hate you, Um, And spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so the fathers did to their prophets. And then the flip side down in verse 26 is the woe. Woe to you when people speak speak well of you, for so they did. uh, Sorry, speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So if you look at the list here of who Jesus is describing, look at what he says is going to happen to these people. First on the list is they'll hate you. Now, nobody wants to be hated. Um, There's an episode of one of my favorite shows, Everybody Loves Raymond. I know all my sermon illustrations are about TV shows. I watch a lot of TV. Get over it. Um, But there's a great episode of um, of, uh, Everybody Loves Raymond where um, he struggles with somebody who doesn't really know him, hates his guts. And he spends the whole episode trying to figure out why this guy who only kind of knows him hates his guts. And that's probably how most of us um, most of us would feel if we found out. Nobody wants to be hated, right? Everyone wants to be liked. Most of us are not uh, WWE bad guys where we're going out there trying to be disliked. Um, but in a gospel written by John, so the fourth gospel, Jesus actually tells his disciples, that's not going to happen. Living in the kingdom is going to rub people the wrong way. Living in the kingdom goes against uh, the values of living in Babylon. And people in the dark hate the light. Uh, we, we talked about this when we read the book of First John together. But in the Gospel of John, it says this. Jesus says this to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so think about how this played out in the life of Paul and the other apostles. Uh, We read about a bunch of these guys and how they were treated, the 12 disciples especially, um, how they were treated, um, you know, and how they died and how they lived their lives. They were flogged and stoned, beaten, rejected, arrested. Uh, One guy was baked alive. They were run through with spears because the darkness hates the light, right? Babylon hates the kingdom of God. And so if you're part of the kingdom of God, you got to expect that at certain times, Babylon's going to hate your guts. So that's the first thing. They'll hate you. They'll exclude you is the next thing. So kingdom people are going to be left out of stuff. Um, You know, this, uh, this happens to me, especially sometimes as a pastor, um, uh, well, one of the things is I notice people, when they find out I'm a pastor, they act very differently around me. I don't get to see the real version of people. 
Um, but, you know, I mean, who wants to invite your pastor to your bachelor party or whatever? You know, I don't know, whatever it is, right? You know, kingdom people are going to be left out of stuff. I think this happens a lot in um, workplaces. It happens a lot in friend groups. Um, you know, right, right? The darkness hates the light. They will revile you. Could also be a, just that's another way to say they'll insult you. Um, it's pretty hard to get through life in America without being ridiculed because of what we believe. Our sexual ethic as followers of Jesus is very different from the sexual ethic of the world, and we're going to be made fun of for that. Um, our beliefs, uh, a lot of people will say, oh, they're archaic, and they're not keeping up with the times, and there's just a lot of reason. You know, I spend a lot of time on Reddit. I like Reddit, and there's you know, there's a lot of good parts of Reddit, the Reformed subreddit that I really like, or the Niners. I always watch the Niners games while I'm on Reddit. But, man, people do not like uh, followers of Jesus on Reddit. Um, and they make fun of us a lot. And that leads to the last one where they'll spurn your name as evil. Following Jesus is not going to help your reputation most of the time, right? And so the reason here is because of the son of man. That's what Jesus says. People don't want Jesus to be their Lord, right? That's what sin is, is like, I always say this is moving God outside of the center and they want to be their own Lords. They want autonomy. And so they can't stand our King. And so by proxy, they can't stand his disciples as well. Um, it's like how, you know, I don't like the Cowboys. You know what else I don't like? Cowboy fans, right? No, I'm just kidding. But it's the same kind of principle, right? If you don't like the Cowboys, you're probably not going to like the fans. Dodgers actually is where we should really be going with this. Insufferable. Anyway, since they won the World Series. Oh, what a horrible, horrible 2020 uh, year 2020 has been. Anyway. Um, but this is kind of like how God told Samuel when the people rejected Samuel and said, we want a king. And they rejected Samuel's sons. God specifically told Samuel, don't worry about it, dude. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And so by doing all this stuff to Jesus' followers, what they're really doing is they're, they're pushing Jesus away. But with that said, I think there's also an important caveat here. Um, next time, we're going to talk all about fruit and, uh, and love and our attitudes as kingdom people. But it's important to say here is that we should not be, uh, we shouldn't look to be hated to fulfill this prophecy. We shouldn't go out there, try to be rough around the edges and rub people the wrong way. I've seen some followers of Jesus act like real turkeys um, and then almost feel good about themselves because everybody hates their guts. Um, I, Kayla was just saying, what was it? A tweet or something she was telling me about? Or I don't remember something on Instagram or I don't know. I'm not great with social media, but anyway, it was something like, you know, Jesus saying to his disciples, I told you to be salt, not salty, right? That's what this is. The reason um, that we should be reviled is because of how much we love Jesus and humility, right? Uh, and because people don't like Jesus, we should have humility in the face of pride, uh, joy in the face of persecution, love in the face of hate. And when we do that, it will rub people the wrong way, but we shouldn't go out there being a bunch of jerks trying to make people mad. Uh, Jesus says, they'll hate you because of me. That's why. So let's not try to fulfill this promise. Now, when they do revile kingdom people when they hate kingdom people. There's an encouragement here. Jesus says, this is what they did to the prophets. This is not new, right? Babylon has always resisted the kingdom and the people of Babylon have always resisted the people of the kingdom. Think about some of the prophets. Think about um, the story of Elijah uh, being chased around by Ahab and Jezebel. And at one point, you know, I love that thing, you know, the, the I think that was another meme or something where Elijah was, or I saw it on Facebook or something, I don't know. Um, but at one point, Elijah was so distressed about uh, his work and his ministry, and I'm the only follower of God left, you know, and 
uh, I just want to kill myself. And then uh, God's answer to that was, well, why don't you take a nap and have a snack? And that's always really encouraging because if you're feeling like that, you know, maybe just take a nap and having a snack is an option. I love that. Um, but they really were. They, they're trying to kill him. Or, um, you know, think of Saul and David chasing David around. Uh, think of how Jeremiah was treated, right? They threw him into the porta potty and they, you know, they left him for dead. Um, Isaiah, you know, church history says was put inside of a, like an empty log, a hollowed out log, and then they sawed him in half, right? This is what they did to the prophets. And so Jesus is saying, look guys, and think about Peter. Peter's going to stand in front of the Sanhedrin. He's going to be whipped. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be arrested and eventually crucified. And what Jesus is saying is, Peter, you're not the first one, man. This has been happening to people who really follow and love me. And so the reward then, that's the encouragement, but the reward is, uh, it says your reward will be great in heaven. Now, what are heavenly rewards? We don't have time to do a whole sermon on heavenly rewards. And I mean, one of the reasons too is we don't know exactly. Um, but the greatest reward in heaven is Jesus himself. Seeing him face to face. Being in the kingdom now means that you're headed towards uh, you're headed towards Jesus. And so if there are some other kind of rewards that we receive in the new heavens and new earth, that's great. Uh, but that's sort of the side dish, right? Jesus is the main course. Jesus is what we're really going to heaven for. Not to see grandma again, although that will be great. Not to live in a big house, you know, with streets of gold or whatever. You know, people argue if that's imagery or what that's like. But none of that other stuff, I mean, not that that's bad, but that's not why we're heading to heaven. That's not why we're excited about heaven. We're excited about heaven because we're going to run and we're going to give Jesus a hug. We're going to fall into his arms and we're going to be perfectly united to the God that we were created to be, um, you know, connected to. And so that's our value. That's what we value the most. That's where our ultimate happiness lies. Now, the values of the world, though, are the opposite. And the sad thing is that there's so many believers, there's so many followers of our King Jesus who spend so much time trying to live the same way as the world. We try to avoid these things because we think this is what will ultimately make us happy. And what this sermon um, that Jesus is giving, these Beatitudes, what he's saying is it's better to be poor with Jesus uh, and then be rich without him. It's better to be hungry with Jesus than to be fat and full without him, right? It's better to, to weep over your sin uh, than to be joyful without Jesus. It's better to be persecuted with Jesus than it is to live a safe and comfortable life without him. And do you see why this sermon is so revolutionary? Jesus is saying, here's the key to happiness, because everybody wants to be happy, don't we? Blaise Pascal, who was a mathematician, physicist, philosopher, and a theologian, right? That's, you know, uh, quite a stack there. Um, he said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever uh, different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some men uh, going to war, of others trying to avoid it, uh, it's the same desire in both, uh, attended with different views. They will never uh, take the least step but to this object. Um, this is the motive of every action of every man even of those who uh, hang themselves. So he's saying, even if you kill yourself, what you're trying to do is be more happy than you are right now. It's sad, though, that a lot of believers think that being happy is wrong, right? Because the whole world's chasing happiness. We think, oh, that must be wrong. And part of what's happening there is this thing called asceticism that seeped into the church, which was this like philosophy early on that was rooted in the philosophy of Plato, um, which didn't like the physical, didn't like the material. And so what these guys, the um, 
these dudes taught was that uh, self-denial makes you more holy. Basically, the more miserable you are, the more godly you are. And that's malarkey, right? Uh, but it's still, you know, it's not a main teaching of the church, but it's still stuck around. It never fully went away. The thing is, though, the Bible never says that happiness is bad. It actually says the complete opposite, that that happiness is the main thing. Our happiness is like one of the ultimate goals, right? That the more we glorify God, the more happy we will be. But we aren't happy. Uh, humanity is generally not happy. Why? Because we're, we're chasing happiness in all the wrong places. This is the story of idolatry. Uh, what Tim Keller calls his book, Counterfeit Gods. Um, there's a lot of ways that we do this. John D. Rockefeller, who at one point had um, 1% of all the wealth in the United States. Think about that. He was worth 1% of all the money and wealth in the United States. One point he was asked, how much money is enough? Um, and by, I think it was a reporter, and his answer was a little bit more. Right, The richest guy and almost one of the richest guys in the history of the world. I need a little bit more money. Or in the 1830s, Alexis de Tocqueville uh, recorded his famous observation visiting America. He noted, uh, this is what he said, uh, strange me- there's a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants um, in the midst of abundance. That's what he said. So these guys, he said about America, they have so much stuff and they're all so bummed out. And so that's one way we chase happiness is through money, but it doesn't work. I grew up in the self-esteem generation. You won't be happy unless you're completely full of yourself. Well, that doesn't really work. Some people think getting married will make me ultimately happy. Tell that to the divorce rate. Some people think having kids will make them ultimately happy, and then they crush their kids by making them the center of their world because nobody can live up to that pressure. Some people think power and politics will make them happy. And we've, we're in the middle of an election. As I'm recording this Friday, uh, we still don't know who won the election on Tuesday. Um, and people think, man, people are putting all their hopes and dreams in this one election. Um, but it reminds me of Alexander the Great, who conquered the entire you know, Near Eastern world and then was crying because he said there were no more worlds to conquer. Right? That's what some people think. Oh, this politics, this power will make me happy. Other people think success will make me happy. I need people to see how good I am. Or linked to success, people think achievement will make me happy. Um, uh, Lance Dodds, who I think is a psychologist, wrote a paper where uh, he called these people the unhappy achievers. I want to read this to you. He says, it's no secret uh, that personal achievement is the cornerstone of American culture. Perhaps uh, more than ever, our modern world of social media and celebrity worship. The problem is that for some people, achievement leaves them feeling empty to the core. It can make them feeling depressed, anxious, even angry. They rarely understand why. They may not uh, even realize that their unhappiness is related to their achievements in the first place. Um, Often, uh, they know that they feel exhausted and they feel deeply unfulfilled. They have deeply unfulfilled feelings that are hard to square with the success that they have achieved. Isn't this supposed to be invigorating? Shouldn't uh, each win make me want to yell, I'm going to Disney World, right? Like the guys in the Super Bowl champs. What he's saying is the he's studied successful people and he's found that they're miserable and they don't know why. And, uh, he, you know, he goes on to give a kind of different go- explanation than the gospel, but he's got the problem right Um, Here's the thing. Here's the gospel storyline. We were created to be in relationship with God. We were created to be filled, fulfilled in 
God by having him be the center. We were meant to be happy by serving God as our Lord. And that connection was broken when sin came into Eden, when sin came into the world. And we have been trying to fill that void with lesser substitutes ever since. And only by being reunited with Jesus will people be ultimately happy. The problem is we can't do that on our own. Our sin has turned us away from God. It is impossible for us on our own to get into the kingdom, to cross that threshold. And that's what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. The king, his shining moment was what? Dying on a cross in our place, paying for our sin, bringing us back, bringing dead hearts back to life. And when we accept that in faith, we're reunited with him. We're brought back into real happiness, not these false knockoffs that the world pushes, money, power, sexual freedom, luxury, success, achievement, right? None of that stuff will make you happy, but Jesus will. He is the source of real, actual, eternal happiness. And so these beatitudes and these worlds, these beatitudes are not, you should be poor so that you will be happy. It's even if you, uh, If you have Jesus, even if you are poor, you'll be happy. Even if you're hungry now, you can be happy. Even if you weep now, uh, despite what these Pharisees and these teachers of the law say, even if people mock and persecute you, uh, they can never take away your king. And this is why Corey Ten Boom said, with Jesus, you know, I'm obsessed with Corey Ten Boom in the last like six months since I read um, uh, her book, The Hiding Place, about being in a concentration camp. But she said this, Uh, With Jesus, even in our darkest moments, the best remains and the very best is yet to be. I love that. She's saying even in the darkest moments, sitting in a concentration camp, she had hope because she knew she was heading towards Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. And so I want to read. Oh, wait, I left it over here. I have this book. It's like a bunch of Puritan prayers and, um, you know stuff like that. And I, I read this one the other day and I thought this would be a great way to end the sermon. This is going to be our prayer to end the sermon. And then we'll go um, into uh, the singing together. Um, so anyway, this is an old prayer. It's got the these and the nows, but I'm just going to read it like it is. Um, and so let this be our prayer. It says, Oh Christ. Oh, it's by an anonymous author too. I don't know who wrote this. Um, it says, Oh Christ, all thy ways of mercy tend to an end in my delight. Thou didst we- did weep Sorrow, suffer, that I might rejoice. For my joy thou hast sent the Comforter, multiplied thy promises, shown me my future happiness, given me a living foundation. Thou art preparing joy for me and me for joy. I pray for joy, wait for joy, long for joy. Give me more than I can hold desire and think of. Measure out to me my times, and degrees of joy at my work, my business, my duties. If I weep at night, give me joy in the morning. Let me rest in the thought of thy love. Pardon for sin, my title to heaven, my future unspotted state. I am unworthy. I am an unworthy recipient of thy grace. I often disesteem thy blood and slight thy love, but can in repentance draw water from the wells of thy joyous forgiveness. Let my heart, my heart leap towards the eternal Sabbath, where the work of redemption, sanctification, and preservation, glorification, is finished and perfected forever. Where thou, uh, where thou wilt uh, rejoice over me with joy. There is no joy like the joy of heaven. For in that state, 
um, are no sad divisions, unchristian quarrels, contentions, evil designs, weariness, hunger, cold, sadness, sin, suffering, persecution, toils of duty. O healthful place where none are sick. O happy land where all are kings. O holy assembly where all are priests. How free a state where none are servants except to thee. Bring me speedily into the land of joy. That's the kingdom of God. Joy in Christ. Amen.